Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. This reading is going to give us a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is Psalm 43. It's the first Lord's Day of the month, so we're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke, our normal sermon series, in order to hear from Psalm 43. But to provide a little context for that brief psalm, we're going to read from John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 30. John 10, 22 through verse 30. Just this little paragraph in which Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. John 10, beginning in verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Amen. Jesus is walking along the exterior of the temple there in Solomon's porch, surrounded by the big, beautiful columns. It is winter, but of course winter in Jerusalem is not quite like winter in Cambridge. It's a little more comfortable where they are. And the Jews descend upon him, that is the leaders, and they ask him the burning question. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, no more riddles, no more parables, speak it straightforward. Of course, they're not actually interested in knowing his identity, they're interested in killing him. And an open confession, I am the Christ, would give them grounds to kill him. Blasphemy. He answers very wisely and carefully. I told you and you do not believe. I mean, if you think about it, I made the blind see. I made the lame walk. I made the mute speak. I made the dead live. I made the storm go silent. I turned the five loaves and the three fish into food for thousands twice. Who do you think I am? I have already shown you. I have already told you. And yet, you do not believe. And so Jesus then pivots and points out that the real question they ought to be asking themselves is not whether or not he's the Christ, but why they don't believe. Why don't they believe what is so obvious? And so he answers the question. Because you are not my sheep. 
My sheep know the voice of my she- of the shepherd. They know when I call and they come and they follow me. Have you guys ever seen the uh, the drone footage of the uh, sheep dogs chasing their sheep? It's a thing of wonder and of beauty. Jesus stands like a shepherd and he calls to us and we who are his sheep come. We know the care and the kindness of our Christ. And so to him we come. And no one can get us away from him. No one can separate us. No one can break his grip. He holds fast to us. With this in mind, friends, turn back to Psalm 43. We're going to look this morning at Psalm 43. Very brief psalm, just five verses. Psalm 43. It comes without subtitle, which some scholars believe is an indication that it belongs to the subtitle most previous. You see there on Psalm 42... To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. So perhaps Psalm 43 is in fact written by the sons of Korah. There's another reason to suspect this, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Psalm 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Amen and amen. Have you ever seen or read a sequel that is so like to the original that you wonder if they should have just called it a remake? For instance, when I was a child, I loved watching Home Alone and Home Alone 2. I thought they were hilarious movies. I thought they were really exciting to be the boy who outsmarted the bad guys. And when I became an adult and shared them with my children, I became just stunned, even scandalized, to realize that the script for the second film has a lot of Control-C, Control-V going on. Like they literally copy and pasted the same jokes with the same punchlines. The, the, the complete absence of originality is stark and stunning. Still enjoyable, but bizarre. When we come to Psalm 43, scholars have noted that there are two verses of these five verses, two-fifths of the psalm is word for word right out of Psalm 42. 
That, combined with the absence of a subtitle, has led some scholars to speculate that Psalm 43 might actually be originally part of 42. But then it broke off. There's very little, almost no evidence of that at all. 43 has been an independent psalm for as long as we have record. There's nothing to suggest that beyond the symmetry of the words and the ideas, which raises, as we approach this psalm, the important question, why do this theme twice? I'm reminded of the pastor who first visited a church, preached to them a sermon. They said, good job. He preached the next Lord's Day the exact same sermon word for word, and they said, that was weird. And the third Lord's Day, he preached the exact same sermon word for word, and they said, what's going on? And he said, when you do this one, I'll give you a new one. My friends, we are slow to learn. We need a second psalm with this good news. Sometimes there is a truth that is so precious and so sweet to us that we hasten past it and we say, that was great, and we move on. And Psalm 43 comes And says to us, no, don't hasten beyond this one. Here is a truth, a good news for you that is so precious and so sweet, it's worth having two sermons on it two months in a row. The truth is, Jesus brings you home. The truth is, it is Jesus who brings you safe to heaven. And my friends, that is a truth worth hearing twice. Jesus brings you safely home, so sing with a smile. So sing with a smile. Now let's think about this a little bit by going through our psalm. And I want you to notice at the beginning of the psalm, we are introduced to a psalmist who is in trouble. In fact, there are two types of trouble. First, he has an interior distress. And secondly, he has exterior oppression. So I actually want to look first at the very end of verse 2. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist speaks of his heart's condition as a grieving, a mourning. His opposition from his enemies is so furious and intense, he likens it to the experience of death. Grieving and mourning a loved one who has passed. Why do I have, the psalmist asks, this experience of a heart sunk deep into sorrow? In verse 5, he refers to it as a cast-down soul. And then again, as disquiet within within him. In speaking this way, the psalmist calls us to the interior troubles that many of us know all too well to the distress that can exist within us as a people who find ourselves again and again insufficient for this life's troubles and problems. Notice the progression. He says it's an experience like mourning. There's great sadness and great sorrow. But secondly, he says it is a cast-down soul. This soul is not just simply the seed of emotion, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's the inner self, the vigor and the vitality of the human, and it is cast down. He speaks of that listlessness. 
that uninspired state when the love of life has evaporated, where you cannot drag yourself out of bed. The pain is too great, the sorrow too intense, and you simply lie, pain-filled but lifeless in your grief. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Do you know those days when you just can't get yourself to be happy? To find joy, to find peace. Indeed, there is this deep, energy-draining agony at the core of your being. This is depression. Here he has this sadness of grief and of mourning. He has this weakness of soul in which he is cast down and unable to work or to laugh or to play. But also, in the absence of energy, in the absence of enthusiasm, there is much disquiet within him. His thoughts are churned up, even while he himself is so dreadfully inactive, incapacitated by his sadness, He is nevertheless finding his mind overactive. Have you ever been in that state? When your heart just can't move forward and your mind just can't shut up. And the fears are bubbling and the worries are roaring and the questions are finding either themselves unanswered or the most horrible answers you could have ever imagined. So great is the sorrow upon you. This is the internal distress that the psalmist is experiencing. A grief that has produced in him a lifelessness, a despair. A grief that has produced in him much turmoil and tumult, in which his mind will not be quieted even as his heart will not be engaged. In the midst of this impossible problem, we are offered extraordinary hope. My friends, you are handed a psalm in Psalm 43 to say, here is a psalm for you. Have you known the mind that is racing? Have you known the heart that is disturbed? Have you felt the oppression of depression and the distress of a soul much troubled? Then here is a psalm for you. Let me foreshadow briefly what is coming to you. Remember that Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Friends, in this psalm, you who are mourning and grieving, you who are cast down in soul, you who are much disquieted in mind, You are offered a psalm of blessing and of hope. In which the psalmist says, here is comfort. Here is the kingdom. Let us go one better. Here is a psalm that offers to you, the depressed and despairing saint, Christ himself. The king who is your comfort. But the psalmist is not only struggling with an internal distress. He is struggling with external problems. These are not 
emotions and fears and worries within him that he has dreamt up. They are not phantasms of a wild imagination. No, this great mourning and grief, this great sorrow, this great disquiet and cast down spirit is born from a reality of his enemies. There at the end of verse 2, do you see there? There is oppression from his enemies. This has this vague and grand language, the enemy who oppresses me. And yet back in verse 1, the psalmist specifically identifies the problem he is facing. He says in the middle of verse 1 that he is opposed by an ungodly nation. And then at the end of verse 1, he refers to them as a deceitful and unjust man. There is a peculiar, even odd, comparison to call his enemies singular and plural in three different places. First, he calls them an ungodly nation, plural, a group. He has a nation against him, a people against him, many enemies. He calls them ungodly here in the New King James, but the the Hebrew is literally not loving, not chesed, the Hebrew word for covenant love, steadfast love, faithful, enduring love, loving kindness, mercy, and compassion. Here is a people who are without kindness and compassion, without love, whose hearts are full of hate, and that hate bubbles up and spills out of their mouths as lies, slander, and deceit. There in verse 1, the hateful heart produces a deceitful man. And there is slander in the streets, lies and accusations that are untrue and unfair. But this wickedness, this enemy is not content with a hot heart full of hatred, nor is he content with a mouth full of lies, but rather he is also an unjust man, working iniquity and oppression. With a heart of hate, with a mouth of deceit, and with hands of injustice, the enemy begins to emerge from the page and the nature of the oppression. Total opposition. There is no relief. There is no friendship. There is no commonality. This is a person utterly disposed to the utter ruin of the psalmist. Let me illustrate it for you. Jesus was standing in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate. And an unloving, hate-filled nation gathered around him and shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Jesus stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by his disciples, exhausted and sleepy. And up came Judas who kissed him and said, Rabbi, a deceitful and unjust man. Jesus stood carrying his own cross with splinters in his back till at last there were nails in his wrist. He is a savior who knows the internal distress that you feel. He is a Savior who knows the weight of injustice 
the oppression of an enemy, the deceit of a liar. And for some of us, my friends, we can relate to this on that literal, concrete level. Because some of us have had human beings in our lives who hated us, who deceived us, who treated us unjustly and oppressed us. And we have literally felt the heat of the hatred of our enemies. For many of us, we know these verses through our sin. Not simply that we have been sinned against, but that we ourselves are sinners. And at work within us is a much ungodly nation. That there is this multitude of wickedness that deceives us, promising us health and happiness and peace and delivering only destruction and death. There is this sin at work within us, unjustly enslaving us to its oppressions. Sin is not our friend or our plaything. It is something that would master us, consume us, and destroy us. Some of us know this through the work of Satan. That he, with his awful power as a deceiver, a father of lies, an accuser of the brethren, without any love in his heart, should oppress the people of God through the darkness and the despair he works. Some of us know this. Some of us know this from the humans around us. Some of us know this from the sin within us. Some of us know this from the satanic forces at play in this world. But friends, I fear that at some point all of us will have to do business with such enemies. Some of you may sit and say, this is all alien to me. And I'm reminded of the the letter that went out yesterday from a pastor who discipled many of us RP pastors, myself included, Kit Swartz. Kit commented at the end of his letter, if you aren't playing hurt as a pastor, you aren't playing. My friends, we are called to carry a cross. And it will bring hurt. Indeed, it will bring death. We are called to die to ourselves. Death does not come easy. My friends, there is such deceit, injustice, ungodliness, hatred in this world, such oppression from our enemies, seen and unseen, that we ourselves are enemies to ourselves. And yet there is hope in this. For we have a God to answer all these problems. The psalmist, having surveyed the interior distress having surveyed the exterior oppression, turns then in verse 1 to the answer. First, he calls upon God to address his enemies. Second, he calls upon God to address himself. In verse 1, he answers one by one the problems his enemies have brought upon him. In verse 1, he gives three verbs, three pleas. Vindicate me, O God, plead my cause, and deliver me. Each one in turn answers the oppression of his enemy. 
Vindicate me, O God. Show me innocent. Shine forth my innocence. This answers the deceits of the enemy who lie and slander and accuse. And he says, no, show me innocent. Answer the lies with the truth that I am righteous. Righteous in Christ. Secondly, he says, plead my cause that has come to my defense. Be my attorney. Stand before the tribunal of this earth, that unjust man about to hand down his unjust sentence and be my defense attorney. Rise up and plead my cause and defend me. Thirdly, he says, deliver me from the ungodly nation. That is, literally, snatch me out of their reach and out of their grip. That is, get me away from this hostile, hate-filled mob and set me at freedom and peace and liberty. This too, my friends, Jesus has experienced. Do you recall how the resurrection vindicated him? That he who was slandered and accused and crucified, was nevertheless shown to be the sinless Son of God in power through the resurrection from the dead. His God vindicated him and showed him on that first Sabbath day, that first Lord's day, to be glorious and great. But secondly, God pled his cause. Can you see Jesus there? In the courtroom of Caiaphas and Annas. And he answers not a word. Jesus then is moved over to the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. And he answers not a word. Why was Jesus so silent in the face of his injustice? In the face of his accusers, his slanderers? According to the Apostle Peter, it was because he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He was trusting the judge in heaven, not the judge on earth. He was waiting for God to plead his cause, and oh, God did. For where is Pontius Pilate? He's worm food. He's dead and gone. Where is Caiaphas and Annas? They are but dust, rotting in the earth. Where is Jesus? He is alive in glory, ruling and reigning as king forever. He indeed had his cause pled faithfully by God. Thirdly, he was delivered. He was snatched up from the grasp of the ungodly nation. Their hatred that was poured out upon him as he was whipped and punched and spit upon, as he was crucified, yet he was delivered. Jesus, far more than Joseph, was able to look upon the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, and to say, you meant it for evil, and my God has used it for good to save you all. With hate-filled hearts, In lying mouths, with unjust hands, they crucified the Lord of glory. And God vindicated him, pled for him, and delivered him. In so doing, we are 
saved. This is the good news. My friends, this does not mean we do not pursue earthly justice. Let me add that to be clear. It means that we pray for heavenly justice as we pursue earthly justice. It was Rachel Den Hollander who noted very wisely the courage and the power to pursue earthly justice came from her convictions of heavenly justice. As she knew Christ, the vindicator, as she knew Christ, the advocate, as she knew Christ, the deliverer, she then had the power to address the evils of this world. This is not the end, but rather the beginning of our pursuit of justice. In this way, peace comes to us in Christ. In this way, Christ is the answer to our enemies. But let us turn inside now. For the psalmist has offered up this prayer to God to say, deal with my enemies. Handle them one by one by one with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. He turns now to the inward problem. You are God of my strength. Why have you cast me off? He acknowledges that the internal weakness, the great problem of his frailty, his despair, his distress, rests in God's apparent absence. Why have you cast me off? It is the appearance of separation from God that has filled him with such weakness and despair. And so in verse 3, he answers that problem with this prayer. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. In this way, he has the exact antidote his distressed and depressed soul needs. The light and truth of God. You see, the turmoil within him, the listlessness within him, was born of the darkness that had overcome him. He needed light. He needed God to shine on those dark thoughts and to banish them like cockroaches to the corners of the world. He needed God to shine the warmth and radiance of his light into his heart to banish and to break the power of the darkness that had settled upon him. The emotional despair was rooted in darkness, and only light could drive it out. In like manner, the troubled mind, the fear-filled worry, was born of the lies of this world we're so prone to believe. And it is the truth, Jesus says, that sets you free. It is the light and the truth which come together to us to deliver us from the darkness and the despair, to bring us an exaltation to the holy hill of God. Now in the Hebrew, this light and this truth could actually be set in comparison as modifiers of one another. We could translate it this way. Send out your light Filled truth, or send out your truthful light. Either way, it points us to the singularity of the fulfillment. Because again, when Jesus came into the world, he said to them, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus came again into the world, he said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the light. When this psalmist prays, send out your light and your truth, he is praying, send me Jesus. And this is a prayer we need to learn to pray. My friends, when we are full of despair, let us pray, send me Jesus. When we are hopeless, let us pray, send me Jesus. When darkness is covering our hearts and there is shadow over the face of God, let us pray, send me Jesus. He is light, he is truth, and he will lead and bring you home. My friends, learn to pray, send me Jesus. To cry out, send me Jesus. And he is the one who will lead you and bring you home. He speaks here first of the holy hill. That the light and truth of God, that is Jesus, leads us and brings us to the holy hill. That is Mount Zion, where Jerusalem stands. But what is more, he says, to the tabernacle. That is there at the heart of the city of God. He brings us into that heavenly fellowship. The joy of the saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. He brings us into the church, but he brings us what is more into his presence, into his friendship, into his fellowship. We have a Jesus who delivers us safely into the arms of his Father. We have a light and a truth that comes from God and gets us safely back to God. This, my friends, is extraordinarily good news. When you are too tired to walk, you have a Savior who can carry you all the way to heaven. When you are too full of despair to even hope, you have a Savior who can carry you all the way to heaven. You have a Jesus who will ascend to the holy hill bearing you in his arms. You have a Jesus who will throw wide the heavenly tabernacle and lay bare the most holy place. And deposit you at the foot of his father. Now he'll do better. He'll deposit you into the lap of his father. He will bring you to the holy hill. To the very tabernacle of God. The very dwelling place of the most high. He is a Jesus who is sure to deliver to his father. Every single sheep he was sent to find. He is a good shepherd. He knows where to find the wandering sheep. He knows how to carry the weak sheep. He knows how to bear your burdens. He is light and he is truth and there is no darkness that will keep you from him. There is no lie, no slander, no enemy. There is no distress or despair within you. Your depression is not greater than Christ. Your fear is not greater than Christ. Your sin is not greater than Christ. In him is a light and a truth that cannot be stopped, that cannot be slowed. He will lead you and bring you to his heavenly Father. He will get you home, and he will not fail. It is with this good news in mind that you are given two things that you must do. Given that we must live in this world with so much interior distress. Given that we must live in this world with so much external opposition. Given that in this world we have with us 
A God who answers our enemies and a God who answers our loneliness, our depression. There are only two things we must do. Verse 4, you must sing for joy. That's your job. He will deal with your enemies and he will deal with your heart. You, you go sing for joy. That's your job. Verse 5, you must also hope with a smile. Let's look at the first one, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. On the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. The psalmist declares that he will not be content to go to the holy hill of God. He will not be content to merely enter the sanctuary of God. He will go right to the altar itself. At the heart of the tabernacle, in the heart of Jerusalem, he will go to the very beating heart of God and be in closest fellowship and proximity to God he will get. Now, of course, what does a good Jew do when he arrives at the altar of God? He presents his sacrifice. Do you see the sacrifice that the psalmist here promises to deliver to the altar of God? I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and there I will... Praise him. Remember Hebrews 13? I will give him the sacrifice of praise. Why no lamb? Why no ram? Why no bull, no goat? Why has this psalmist come to the holy hill of God, to the tabernacle of God, to the altar of God with empty hands? Because there is no sacrifice for his sin except the one God has provided already in Christ. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, has beat him to the altar. He's already there. My friends, we do not look to the Lamb who was slain. We look to the Lamb in Revelation who looks as if he were slain, but raised from the dead. We worship a resurrected God. We worship a resurrected man. We worship the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and is now alive forevermore in heaven. When you go to the altar of God, you will not see the sacrifice burning. You will see the sacrifice reigning over the earth as king forever. And this is a fountain of exceeding joy. That the one who died for my sin is the one who rules the nations. The one who loved me and gave himself for me has all authority in heaven and earth. Such joy. Such exceeding joy to have Jesus on the throne. Could you imagine how happy you would be? If your best friend became a billionaire and you would have none of the sorrows and troubles of being wealthy and all the benefits, have you heard that little slogan? You don't want to own a boat or a pool. You want your neighbor to. My friends, how sweet to have a savior who rules the world and to know how much he loves you, that indeed you should praise him as your God to sing his praise 
Now in this verse, it says to sing his praise with a harp. But if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, you will see that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul commands us to make melody not with the harp, but with the heart. Paul commands us in Ephesians 5, make melody with the heart, the one instrument every human can play, the one instrument played by the Holy Spirit. That we should sing praise with the fullness, not of strings, but of hearts. Hearts of exceeding joy. Hearts once full of despair and depression. Hearts once distressed by our enemies, now leaping for joy at the reign of our King. In addition to this joyful praise, my friends, the psalmist calls you to hope. He says to his own heart, why are you cast down and disquieted? Hope in God. Here is the antidote to our enemies. I hope in God. Here is the antidote to our despair. I hope in God. I trust him. He knows his business. He does it well. I believe him. I shall yet praise him. He is the Savior, the help of my countenance. He is my God. I love this conclusion. What is your countenance? Why is it so important to have a God who helps your countenance? You remember the ironic benediction? I'll say it in just a few moments. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Face, countenance, same thing. I have a God who helps my face. That is, that makes me spot smile. This is what the Hebrew means. I have a God who makes me smile. How's that for good news? I have a God who helps me smile. With all my enemies around me, with all my sorrows within me, I have a God who can give me a smile. Because he has given me Christ. Jesus who reigns over me. Jesus who brings me safely home. It is a sweet thing, my friends, that you should walk with Christ. And that you should die with Christ. Knowing that in life and in death, he'll get you home. He'll place you into the arms of his Father. And there, you will begin to smile. And the smile will never end. Dear friends, Jesus brings you home. Sing with a smile. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess with the psalmist that we have many troubles. Enemies all around us, sorrows within us. And yet, Father, we confess with the psalmist, we have a great Savior who is sufficient to make us righteous, to defend us before our enemies. We have a Savior who is able to quiet our hearts, to silence our minds, and to bring us peace. We have a Savior 
who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. We give you thanks for our Jesus, so great and so glorious. And we pray that this day we would have joy in him. That we would sing for joy. That we would hope with joy. That we would believe and indeed know that in Christ salvation is done. We give you thanks for him and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.